Barry Sherry here. Thanks for tuning in to Pink Noise, a radio show dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who have mined and shined their inner gold. I'm recording on board a floating home that I share with my partner in Seattle, Washington. I would like to acknowledge that we are on the unceded ancestral lands of the Duwamish people, past and present. Before we dive in today, I want to tell you about the Spark Healing Summit. It's coming up on May 20th. And it's a three-day explosion of energetic, vibe-high goodness for your body, mind, and spirit. We're talking about 20 heart-centered practitioners offering their magic from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Somatic experiences, yoga, meditation, Akashic Records reading, shadow work, qigong, and breath work. And me, offering conscious connection during the afternoon circles each day. Now here's the special Mother's Day surprise. One lucky Pink Noise listener will receive a free VIP ticket. Email IamVerySherry at gmail by May 16th. That's one week after this program first airs. And tell me why you want to attend the Spark Healing Summit. That's I-A-M-V-E-R-Y S-H-E-R-I at gmail.com for your chance to win. To learn more, use the link in the show notes. With today being Mother's Day here in North America, I was looking for a guest whose message might resonate for someone who has the unique responsibility and pleasure of being a mom to a kid. This quest led me to Robin Coney. Because creativity is the core of critical thinking, innovation, problem-solving, and social change, she believes that it's our job to keep every child creative, to become the type of leader we need in the world. And in the last 20 minutes of the show today, we're going to review her top 10 ways to engage your creative brain. Let's begin. Robin Coney, I'm so excited to have you here on Pink Noise Radio. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And today we're going to talk about the magic of creativity, among many other things. (laughs) Creativity is one of my favorites. I'm excited. (laughs) That's what I figured. (laughs) And in getting to know you, I was reading a, a thread where you talked about what connects you to your work and it's this love of the creative process disruption kind of all of it you believe that creativity is what makes us come alive and so i i thought we'd start there Uh, something you wrote was that imagination plus action is the formula that helps individuals businesses and societies solve big problems, and basically make the world a better place. My nature is very action-oriented. Anyone who knows me, if we have an idea, 
let's do it. Right. You know, I'm jumping in as soon as I can. And, and that has brought a lot of happiness because it's been very creative in nature. It has also brought a lot of disruption to my life. And I think that's one of the things people fear about creativity. Like we love to talk about creativity as, you know, this artistic expression or this innate part of our human, you know, being. And the reality of it is that creativity is messy and the only way out is through. And so that action, I think there's so many people who have brilliant ideas. And as soon as we get to that messy bit, it's natural to sort of step back and be like, whoa, this this wasn't what I thought. Like I have this vision of this refined, beautiful end product, goal, service, whatever it is. And my life has taught me over and over again that you have to be okay with that messy middle, that disruption, that sort of rebellious breaking, breaking things down to build something new. And, um, and I think that's true, whether you're in business, whether you're in relationship, whether you're just trying to make your community better, that uh, we need creative solutions. And that means we have to embrace that disruptive side. And what was the way in which you got past that messiness for yourself? Like what tools did you have to pull out of your toolbox in order to say, it's okay? I think the thing that really forced me to embrace the disruptive, messy side, one, just my own stubbornness, I would jump into projects with this determination to see it through. And so in some ways that helped me push through that messy thing, just because I needed to prove that I was going to end on top, following through, doing what I said I was going to do. And then the biggest change, and I think the thing that allowed me to find more joy in the mess, because before, even though I was pushing through it, I don't think I enjoyed it, uh, was becoming a mom and having two children, the oldest specifically being pretty stubborn herself and pretty rebellious and willing to push back and ask why and not do things just because that's the way things have been done and, and wanting to honor her and who she is and not try to stifle her with my own personality and control issues uh, forced me to reflect a lot on just how I move through this creative process and what really matters and and to just enjoy the mess. You know, I'd walk into my daughter's room and she's creating this amazing 3D mask out of this foam that she bought off online. And she's, she's 10 years old and her room is just covered in foam bits everywhere. And my initial instinct is to just be like, oh, we've got to clean this up. This is a disaster. And to pause and to say, but look what she's creating. Like, look how amazing this is. And we can get to the cleaning part in a minute or in a few hours or in a few days. But right now, like this mess is necessary for her to be building this thing that she's building. That's an incredible perspective that you were able to make that shift. And what I'm hearing you say is that you are valuing her capacity to innovate over your need to have things organized or clean. And it's a daily battle. Let's, let's keep it a perspective. I'm not hundred percent perfect on this, but that's the goal. That is 
that is the thing I try to tell myself when those OCD and perfectionism, you know, tendencies pop in is to, to pause, to give myself that space to, again, it's the creative process to create something new. Like, why do we have to do it the same way you've always done it? What if we held back? What if we stopped? What if we gave her the space that she needs to do what's fulfilling for her? And it's not always easy and I'm not perfect at it. Uh, but with that pause, I've gotten better at it. And I've seen the fruits that come from that pause and from that space and from that mess that um, there's a lot more joy in that for me than there used to be. For you to make the leap as a parent and say, I'm going to value this self-expression. And the reason that touches me so much is that I realize that's what I stand for. Mm. As a, as a human, as an adult, I stand for to be fully self-expressed. It is, it is at the center of my, my compass. Like it's what I want for me. And it's what I want for you. It's what I want for everyone. And to be able to be fully self-expressed, to expose yourself for all that you are, you have to have some self-acceptance. Like that has to be nurtured and cared for. And so, and so you focusing on creativity, not only with your child, but now in your business, what have you witnessed with your children as you make room for their mess? Well, I think in terms of my daughter, I've witnessed um, trust um, because she, like I say, she's very determined. She's very, um, she doesn't care if people like her or think she's like, she is in that way, very different for me where I, I craved sort of that, you know, whether it was my parents or my teachers at school, like I craved that validation that I was straight A's and doing all the things. And, and my daughter doesn't care about that. And so I think whether I had accepted and given her that space or not, she would have bulldozed her way to it one way or the other. And because I, I gave that space, we, we have a great relationship. And I think she knows that I'm here for her and that I, I value her process and her personality and that it's not about the things that she accomplishes but just who she is and that creative expression. And so for me, it's been a gift for me uh, just because I feel like we have that trust and we have that relationship that I hope we can continue to foster as we move into her teenage years, who knows, right? But, um, but yeah, it's just been such a, a gift to recognize that, I can offer her what I sort of self-sabotage my sense of kind of outside validation and then really trying to give her that sense of inner validation and that I'm here to support it. I'm not here to validate her, but to support her because she doesn't need my validation one way or the other. Because it all comes from within. Exactly. And, and you know that now such an amazing thing to see her just own herself, um, fully 
And, and so, yeah, in that ways, you know, I really look up to her as she just was born with this innate sense of this is who I am and you can deal with it or not. I don't care. Like, it's just such a, an amazing thing to see and that she's been able to hold on to it, um, you know, even into, you know, for a full decade um, is pretty remarkable. And I, you know, I just hopefully can support her so that she can carry that with her all the way into adulthood and beyond. And how has that changed you? Oh, so much. Parenting has been the best gift and the most frustrating lesson in repeating, like, and just feeling like a failure (laughs) for someone who always had the straight A's and, you know, accomplished things and had this list, this resume that was impressive. Um, Parenting has been the most humbling and frustrating and exciting and joyful and painful experience because you just realize that no matter what ideals you have or good intentions you have, you have these people who have their own personalities and their own hopes and dreams and fears and struggles that they're going to, they're going to make sure you go through the mess because there's no other way through it. So I'm curious hearing that, what were you doing um, with your time before you decided to have children? So I, one of the things that really helped me, so I was very OCD, very perfectionist, straight A student, but I also had this passion for dance and And that I think in so many ways taught me lessons of creativity and disruption and improvisation and all these things that I need desperately as a parent and as a human being in this messy world. Um, And it gave me a safe place where I could explore. And I got both my undergraduate and my master's degree in dance. And so there were a lot of lessons in that where they wanted you to get messy, get vulnerable, like all these things that were so terrifying to me. And so I think having that background in dance, and then I moved on, I was a university professor in dance. And so I was this, again, this weird mix of perfectionism and control. And this is the way in a very creative field and industry that slowly chipped away some of those tendencies for outside validation or for it to be shiny and perfect right at the beginning. Um, So it was doing a lot of work. And then motherhood just sort of like kicked into high gear where it was, okay, you've had enough. You've, you've had 20 plus years to work on this and you're still just barely scratching the surface. Like let's, let's throw you into the lion's den and give you some real lessons on, on what that process looks like to disrupt your normal life, to, get through that messy middle and to see just how worth it it is on the other side. I'm picturing you dancing and you said you were a professor of dance. So I'm imagining that you're pretty accomplished at the art of dancing. And so as I picture you as a moving being, I know for me, when I dance, when I close my eyes, I can move without feeling as self-conscious as when I'm watching others and comparing my movements to their movements. But when I close my eyes and dance and I go inward and I feel the rhythm in my body and I just, what I'm doing is I'm moving on intuition 
And so as I take that perspective that I have of the way I dance, and I imagine you dancing with your skills and talents, I'm seeing it as an act of self-trust that there is a lot of improvisation in dance and movement. And I can't imagine there's a right way or a wrong way to simply be in movement with your body. I grew up doing ballet and jazz, which is very, this is the way, especially ballet, right? You need to look this way. Your feet need to be in this exact position. These are the steps and you can create some variation in how you string them together, but this is our vocabulary. And when I moved into uh, college at the university level, I was introduced to contemporary modern dance, which for the perfectionist like me was really exciting, but also terrifying because suddenly it was, yeah, we have these, you know, technique classes and there are certain things that we want you to do to protect your body. And there's a certain aesthetic that we definitely value, but there's also so much room for you to explore and, and find new ways to move. Like what if you moved in a different way that no one has ever thought before? So it was very exciting to me, but I was still driven by this perfectionism. And I remember my senior year and, and I, I did very well. Like I was always, I was the, the student that every professor asked me to remember the combination so that they could come back to it the next day. Cause they knew my mind worked like a computer and I would, like I could memorize the movement. I'd have it on the right counts at the right time. But I also wasn't like the most stellar performer considering my technical ability. There were always people getting better roles than me because they were more vulnerable. They were more emotional and authentic. And I was, again, very sort of not robotic, but sort of machine, right? That like this was the input you gave me and now I am repeating it just as you wanted it. And I remember this one professor said to me my senior year and he said, Robin, I think it would change your dancing and your life if you spent 30 minutes a day just rolling on the floor. And I looked at him like he was insane. Like that is the most absurd. What, 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 what benefit would that have? Like to me, it was like the biggest waste of time and just weird. And I just sort of laughed at him. I'm like, okay, sure. Whatever you say. And after I graduated that spring, I started, uh, a certification in law bond movement analysis, which is a somatic based um, practice. And we spent eight weeks that summer. It was eight hours a day. And the first two hours were literally, for lack of a better term, us rolling on the floor. Like there was more to it, right? We're going through some human developmental patterns, kind of the way a baby would uh, crawling all, you know, crawling, rolling, just very minimal stuff that for an outsider probably looks really weird, I'm sure. But what was so interesting is that next fall, after those eight weeks, I went, I started grad school. And the very first day we had a technique placement class and I had a friend. And when she saw me dance, she comes up to me and she's like, Robin. And I wasn't, so I was in her senior project. So she knew my movement really well and my abilities. And she just comes up to me. She's like, you are moving so differently. She's like, everything seems softer, but bigger. Like you just can't take your eyes off you. And I hadn't danced at all that whole summer, but I did spend a lot of time being supported by the earth, breathing, 
letting go of this kind of muscly bound expectation that I had to do everything. And I found how to like move more efficiently by letting the earth support me and using my skeleton more naturally. And just these elements that literally transformed the way I moved. And I had so many people comment that summer. It's like, you look so different. Like they couldn't put their finger on it. Cause it's like, did you lose weight? You don't look like you, you look about the same, but you just look different. And the thing I learned that summer more than anything was that I could let go. I could let the earth trust me, like support me. I could open up and be vulnerable with this group of 20 people that were doing this program with me. It was just this practice of letting go of muscling my way through everything that control. And, and while it was a very biological and physical process, it rippled in such a way in my interactions with my friends and my parents and just the values that I took into the world. Like suddenly I realized I don't have to do everything on my own and perfect the first time, the second time ever, you know, it was just this sort of reminder. It's like, I'm a human and I can let go and I could just be creative. And I went into that program with the goal of being the most efficient mover. Like that was my goal, right? I want to use this to get my certification to help me get a university teaching job. And I want to be efficient. And I left with this passion for expression and creativity that four years of undergraduate work as a dance major didn't get me because I was trying to control the situation from day one. I love this story so much. And, and I want to ask you to back up because I want to hear the name of the somatic practice that you engaged in that summer. I, I wasn't familiar with the term you used. So it's called Laban movement analysis. And it's a system of, um, in the same way that like you can take a piece of music and everyone can play it because we know what the notes mean. It was his, uh, Rudolf Laban wanted a way to codify movement, not like to say that this means this, but just to be able to name it and be like, oh, this person is retreating and sinking into their body while they're moving in the vertical plane or to just give language in a way that helps you identify movement. and then. Connected with that, his work with Ermgard Bartiniev, she has what's called the Bartiniev Fundamentals. And her work, which was the one that was really transformative to my body, was all about kind of revisiting those movement patterns that we all went through in our first two years of life, those baby patterns, um, to just reorganize the body back to its natural state because habits and injury and all these, you know, life just sort of get in the way and start collecting on our body. And so the whole point is to repattern it back to our natural state. So I'm hearing that these courses that you took in the summer on the somatic practice got you into your body and helped you learn how to receive support from the earth, from grounding. And that allowed you to be more free and liberated I'm wondering how this how this practice translates for other people who aren't dancers. Like where else could you see, where else could you see that movement practice impacting someone? Very biased on this subject. 
but in my mind, this is for anyone who has a body, right? Um, the whole program isn't, it attracts a lot of dancers and theater people and musicians, but it's, it's really just about getting reoriented to your body, coming home to this thing that we separate ourselves so often because we're always doing tasks or trying to look a certain way or seeing what's in the mirror or the clothes we wear, like everything is so outside focus. And I think the world would change drastically if we all took that time to go inward, to sense our bodies and just to listen and see what's going on. And even if you don't have the answers or you don't know where to start, just listening is such an important first step and, and letting go that, that just reminder that we don't have to hold ourselves up. Like I love the, just the analogy that the skeleton is truly designed. If our alignment is good and we don't have injuries or all this stuff, like the, the skeleton is designed to release into the earth. And physics tells us for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So the earth pushes back up and that we can have this co-creative experience. And, and that was life-changing for me because I, and I still struggle with this to this day, I'm a lot better, but I still struggle. Um, I like to be the master of my life. Right. And that often means I feel like I need to be the master of my kid's life or my husband's life or the situations that I can't really control, but I'm going to pretend like I can. And instead to just realize that we're part of something bigger, we're part of this earth, we're part of communities, we're part of families and relationships. And the more we can let go and release into those things that support us, whether they're the people, the earth, whatever, the more we can let go and trust that that support is there, the more we're going to feel energized and, and that weight lifted off and life just gets easier. It's not, you know, there's still struggles. There's still things to work through, but suddenly it doesn't feel like this lonely task that you have to master and mold and make work, but you can start seeing those creative possibilities of, well, what if I let go of this? What if I just really trusted that my partner is going to do the things that he says he's going to do? Oh, look, I didn't have to stress about it. And it got done. You know, just those little tiny reminders that there are people, there are situations. And if nothing else, if your life really is so isolated, you have this huge planet that is literally supporting you at all times. And the more we can just trust that and let go, the more possibilities open up. Because of your practice, what did that give you access to? How did it change you in your daily life? I mean, I think the biggest thing is just that word practice, right? It's making that time and that space to shut off from the shoulds and the to-do lists, even if it's just for a few minutes every day. And I think two big things that keep coming to my mind of how, like, how can we all take this and how can we do something with this without having to go spend, you know, $10,000 on a certification program or leaving our families for a whole summer. And I think the two things that keep coming to mind is just breathing that most basic primal, essential part of our life. Um, we do it automatically. Like we don't have to think about it. 
but giving it some attention, giving it some awareness uh, changes it. And it allows us to maybe go deeper or to notice where the breath isn't getting because we're holding tension. And then we can maybe breathe into that spot um, or just try to release, relax, let it go. And so I think taking that time every day to breathe for me was so critical because that sort of go, go, go mentality that's so prevalent in our society naturally lends us to more shallow, short breath. Um, and just, we stop listening to ourselves and breath is such a ongoing sort of signal of our bodies. Like I'm here, I'm alive, I'm doing my thing and acknowledging that I think is so powerful. And the other thing that comes to mind is that going back to the idea of creativity, because the creative process is so powerful in that it allows us to have that sense of control. There have been studies that have shown that uh, creativity helps with anxiety because, um, you know, one of the biggest things with anxiety is that uncertainty of the future. And so when we are in the creative process, we suddenly get to play that role. We get to make those decisions. We get to have that deciding role while at the same time, embracing that mess and that uncertainty and that who knows where this will take me, but I'm expressing myself or I'm learning something new or I'm solving a big problem. And so I think taking the time to do creativity for the sake of creativity And this is where I always, because again, my practical, logical mind goes, well, if you're going to be creative, there should be a reason for it. Like it's for your business or it's for your kids. And I think taking some time, whether it's daily or weekly or monthly to say, I'm being creative for me. It's for me to experience that expression, that that messy middle to just practice being human because nothing is more human than creativity. And so for me, those two practices, taking the time to breathe and just center back into our body and listen to our bodies, um, I think that's such a great way to start any creative process because it sparks inspiration. It gives us that space for our brain to go, oh, wait, I don't have to do X, Y, and Z. What if we went over here and did blue, right? It doesn't have to be a letter. It gives us that space to jump into something different and, and anytime we can see the world in a different way, whether it's our world, the neighborhoods or families that we're in, or the world as a whole, it just gives us more information and more assurance that we're not alone and that we are interconnected and that my creative ideas may spawn someone else's creative ideas that may ricochet off and get this creative idea that could change the world. You know, I may not solve the world hunger problem, but my ideas may ripple out to someone smarter than me who can solve it. And so I think that creative process just allows us to feel that control that we love and that abandonment and support from outside of ourselves that we need. Wow. That was awesome. Well, isn't meditation one of your first steps in the 10 ways that you can keep yourself creative and keep your kids creative? That idea of slowing down and listening to the breath. I was reading your Keep Your Kids Creative Guide, and I'm pretty sure step one or idea number one 
was in fact meditation. You'll also remember dancing's in there. So again, a little biased here, but the research is clear, right? Getting into our bodies, taking that space, breathing, um, they're essential tools if we want to tap into our creativity and we need to tap into our creativity. There is a creativity crisis happening in the world today. And, you know, we need that creativity to solve. We have big problems we need to solve. So we need creative kids. We need creative adults, which means we need people who are willing to trust that they can find something if they're given the space to break down what's not working first. Like we can't find those solutions if we're not willing to tear down what isn't working. And so the creative process like is by its nature destructive before it's creative. Say more about that. Could you give me an example of something that you had to break down in your life in order to move to the part that was fun and creative? Oh man. Uh, my family and I decided we wanted, we wanted to move to New Zealand because we had an online business at the time. My kids weren't in school yet and it just seemed like a great opportunity. And the process of doing it, I remember when my husband and I, like we thought about this, whenever we get, you know, it's usually we were living in Utah at the time is usually like January when the inversion sets in and the skies are just gross and the snow is, you know, colored and not really fresh and pretty. And you're just like, why do I live here? I want to go live someplace warm and tropical. And, and we usually would go look at expensive beach houses in Costa Rica or, you know, these places that we really had no intention of moving to. But on this particular day, we started looking at New Zealand and instead of looking at houses that were just really fun to daydream, we actually looked at houses like in our budget and we looked at the schools and we looked at the streets that the neighborhoods and we, we just go, we could do this. Like this would be, this would be an opportunity. So that was the idea, right? That creative spark. You always start with the idea. And then when we started thinking about what that meant to actually sell everything we own, to uproot our lives, to get visas, to uh, you know, finance the trip to every step we started looking at. And it was just this mountain that was like, this seems like more work than what it's worth. Like this seems scary. This seems unexciting and not very sexy and pleasant the way we're moving to New Zealand sounds. The reality was just overwhelming. And so we decided to call it off. We're like, ah, oh, that's, that's too much effort. That's too much mess. That's too much disruption. And, and the next few days, like we both were just so grumpy, like we were just in this mood and we're usually pretty level-headed and, and we were both just kind of short tempered. And, and we finally stopped after like the second or third day, we're like, we were really excited and just full of joy and hope when we were talking about moving. And then as soon as we decided not like the energy just changed, it's like, let's do it. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be really hard to get us there but we think it's going to be worth it. And so the, the disruption was four or five months of applying for visas, planning out when, because we sold everything other than we took like four suitcases for a family of four um, and figuring out when you could sell your vacuum, but still have it enough to clean. And like, you know, it was this huge process and, and it was so messy at the first that you're like, there's no way we're going to figure this out. And slowly it starts to like fall into place and, and you start seeing the shape and the form of like, 
this is happening and we're doing this. And I still remember being on the airplane um, right before landing in Auckland and seeing the city and just like, holy cow, did we really just do this? Did we really just like uproot our family and move 7,000 miles with two kids, one that was under the age, like was one years old. And, and we did, and it was the most life-changing, wonderful experiences. It just gave us such a new perspective and to see the world outside of sort of that USA centric, you know, viewpoint that both my husband and I grew up with, it was so worth it, but it was not easy and it was not clean cut. It was messy and complicated. And there were so many times I'm like, why are we doing this? And I think that's that creative process of we can have brilliant ideas that excite us. And are we willing to push through the mess and the heartache and the hard work to get there? And I'm sure there's plenty of times in my life where I haven't done that. And I always wonder, what would my life be like had I? Because any time where I've made those big, huge, drastic changes and pushed through the mess, I've never regretted it. Mm, that's the key right there, isn't it? You're a living example of someone who pushed through the mess and never regretted it. And I wonder how many people I could talk to who did big things like my friend, Jen Gawanga, two kids, her and her husband just sold the house, got in a van and started traveling. And they've just been living an adventurous life the last couple of years. I don't even know their whole story. I just see parts and pieces uh, through social media. And it really amazes me. It, it is that action step. I've been having a reoccurring vision in my meditations over the last couple of years around building a team of like-minded leaders. People who believe what I believe in the importance of fostering self-love. That when we more fully embrace ourselves and accept ourselves as we are with all of our parts and pieces, our light and our dark, that we show up, that we show up more fully and authentically as ourselves. And when we do that, we give other people permission to do the same. And I think that when we love ourselves, we have a lens that allows us to see the love in others. And I believe that that diffuses the, the hate and the, I can't like you because you don't believe what I believe but I can like you for being true to you and the values that you grew up with. And even though they're different than mine and that's okay. It's not only okay. It's like, it's not even my job to have an opinion about it. And that's when we get to more unity and coming together, as you say, to solve these bigger problems in the world. But it is in, taking some risks. I spent Sunday with my dear friend, Odessa, who's the imagination queen. And she was one of my first guests in the early episodes of this program. And she said, don't die before you die. Mm. In fact, she shouted it in my car. Let's not die before we die. 
I love that. It reminds me of um, one of the teachers of the certification program I did. You know, her thing was always like, find what makes you come alive and do that thing. Like, it's that simple, right? What makes you come alive? Do that. Do you know that that's the basis for this entire program is the Howard Thurman quote? Howard Thurman said, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go do it because the world needs more people who have come alive. Yes, 100%. Yes. Yes. And look at you with this creativity. And, and I know that your, your business, the tagline is every child is born creative. Our job is to keep them that way. And so you are here holding the banner of creativity as the, as the gateway. And you've got these 10, 10 tips to keep ourselves and our young ones creative. Would you, would you go over those? Yes. So morning meditation is just a simple way, right? The whole point of this guide is parents and not just parents. I mean, that's who this guide is sort of tailored towards, but it's really for anyone who wants to keep creativity alive in themselves because we're all born creative. And some of us maybe need to refine, you know, find it again or uncover it. It's been buried. Um, but I wanted 10 simple things that you could just pop into your life, whether it was once a week or every day, but the type of things that it's like, Hey, we're all sitting here at the dinner table. Anyways, let's do this thing that helps us tap into that creativity. And so that first one, the morning meditations, um, with kids and anxiety, just on the rise, I think teaching our kids, even if it's just one minute at a time, how to just tune in and breathe and listen to their body. Because again, that all goes back to creativity comes from us. And so we need to take the time to listen and to hear what's going on and to turn off the noise. And it's a practice. We all know meditation is a practice. And some days you cannot turn off the noise, how much you try. Um, But the more we consistently do it, the easier it gets to find that space so that those sparks, right? That first stage is kind of this nebulous place where there's not a lot of form and we're not really sure what goes on. And meditation gives us that space for the ideas to actually bubble out and to pop out. So we want to start with that morning meditation. Nice. You talked about breakfast brainstorms was on your list. I love breakfast brainstorms. So I have found sometimes with kids, um, at least my kids, that they're just not really talkative. Like you ask them, how was your day? What did you learn at school? And they're like, nothing. And you're like, really? Nothing. Um, but I find that kids respond a lot more when you turn it into a game where you give them a structure, right? And, a, and these kind of breakfast brainstorms could be as simple as saying, hey, if you could have any superpower in the world, what would it be? And then they, they maybe give you one, like, I want to fly. Okay, well, what are other superpowers, right? And you're just getting that brain to start thinking as many ideas as possible. That's that divergent thinking in the brain that allows us, um, that's necessary through that creative process. We need to know that there's lots of possibilities in a world that tells us this is the way, right? This is the way to raise your kids. This is the way to be a happy, healthy American. This is the way. And so just sitting, you know, at the breakfast table with your kids, again, two to three minutes brainstorming, like, what should we do this weekend? Let's see how many ideas we can come up with. And just giving them that permission 
to find as many ideas as possible uh, is so, so good for them mentally, um, good for their creativity. And it's also good as a parent to just remind yourself that, oh, there are lots of things we could do this weekend. And maybe I should ask my kids more often instead of feeling like I'm the cruise director that has to always come up with something. I'm noticing that that's resonating. I'm I'm imagining how good that would be in conversations with uh, even some of my peers. And daily dancing, of course, is on your list. Oh, yes. Daily dancing is just turn on some music and move the body. There's so many benefits to, to dancing. And particularly, you know, as a dancer, there's a lot of people think, well, I'm not a dancer, right? They can see what they do on World of Dance or So You Think You Can Dance. And it's like, that's not me. I don't have that athletic skill or this mobile, this crazy flexible body. And I always remind people like dancing is just inherent in our bodies. Like it's a natural thing. Animals dance, like it's part of who we are. And so turn on some music and move because that music and that movement not only release a lot of tension that sometimes keeps us from our creativity, uh, but there's been studies that show like that sort of improvised creative dancing does spark the the creative part of our brain and helps us start generating more ideas and new solutions. Awesome. Uh, As we began this conversation, you said something about uh, we all have dinner or, you know, imagining that we're nourishing ourselves in some way with food throughout the day. And so why not engage in a dinner debate? What What does that sound like? Dinner debates, um, one of the things, and I think this is hard for a lot of parents, especially I grew up in Utah, which is very, there's a lot of Orthodox uh, religious people here, very, you know, black and white thinking. um, And, you know, the whole honor thy father and thy mother mentality that we, or the children should be seen and not heard. Like we have all these little sayings and all these rules that tell us parents know best. And if we don't teach our kids how to debate us, right? How to challenge these beliefs that we are doing them a disservice as they move into the world, whether that's for their job, um, just for their own healthy boundaries and relationships. And so, you know, dinner debates could be as formal as like, do you think there should never be homework handed out at school? I want you to tell me all the reasons why yes or no. And then you flip it on them. Okay. You told me all the reasons why there shouldn't be homework. Why do you think maybe there should be homework? So you're just getting them to do that critical thinking that allows them to see two sides of any issue, which the world would be so much better, right? If we could come to that ability of, even if we don't fully agree with both sides, to at least understand where people are coming from so that we can have a conversation, we can find a common ground or find some solutions and teaching our kids um, how to disagree and how to push back isn't just good for them mentally and emotionally, but it's a great way to tap into their creativity. And Friday free time. What's the, what's the logic behind Friday free time? Friday free time is for any of those parents who do think they have to like plan every moment of their children's life. We have so many kids today who are, um, just so overscheduled, right? They have soccer twice a week and then dance class and gymnastics and ninja training and decathlon, mathematics. I mean, there's so much. And the research is pretty clear. Like it's, it's doing more harm in some ways than it's doing good. 
And I'm not saying we should get rid of all activities or extracurricular or those um, goals that, that help our children, you know, progress and find those like moments of achievement, but at least on Fridays or whatever day, we're just going for the whole alliteration here, whatever day you want, make sure you have some unstructured time where you're not the one telling your kids what to do, or they're not just in front of a screen, but where they have to get creative. I know like my generation, I'm, we, you know, we didn't have cable TV growing up. So we had cartoons in the morning and then it was like, both my parents worked. And so entertain yourself. And we built things and we created businesses. Like we did crazy things and that really helped with creativity. And I think kids today do so much. And in some ways it's super impressive what they can do, but do they know how to entertain themselves? Yeah. We rely on our devices. We rely on technology or on these scheduled activities that whenever my, my son says I'm bored, I was like, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, just that simple thing forces them to be creative and, and it will, you'll get some complaints. You'll get some kids whining and entertain me or play with me. And, and, you know, just remind them that it's good for them to figure out how to entertain themselves, how to find solutions, how to fill that time and do what's meaningful to them. I think we need that as adults too. Amen. Number seven is magic moments. Magic. So magic is one of those things that kids love it. I have this really corny trick that I do with my wedding ring where I like hide it and it's in their ear. And I do it to my three and four-year-old nieces because they're at that age where they think it's really cool and it makes me feel cool. Um, But kids love magic, whether it's learn, you know, reading Harry Potter or reading fiction about magicians or watching magicians, right. And asking them, especially for older kids, having them watch magic tricks and say, how do you think it was done? Like, it's such a simple, easy thing that most kids love watching. And then they love feeling that, Ooh, yeah, I'm going to figure it out. Right. It's that challenge, but it gets their brain again. It gets them thinking of the potential solution. So there's that divergent thinking, and it's also that critical problem solving and makes them sort of analyze the world and not just take things at face value. Ready resources. So basically this is just saying, have access to things that will give your kids creative spark. So we have, both of my kids have these dressers in the room and the bottom drawer, cause they don't have a lot of clothes cause they only wear the same three outfits over and over. Um, but their bottom drawer is just full of cardboard boxes, empty tubes, paper towel rolls, whatever it is, right? Any sort of recyclable that we could use to create. And we have those easily accessible. We have markers, paper, scissors, crayons, just anything that you could imagine that's like age appropriate. My daughter, she plays with the glue gun all the time at this point. And just so that it's there, because when creativity hits a child, if they go, mom, I want to build this thing. And you go, okay, well, what do we need? And, oh, we don't have that. We'll do it this weekend. I promise you by the weekend, they won't want to do it again. So we want to have, and it doesn't have to be expensive. It doesn't have to be like, say, just hold on to your empty milk cartons or whatever it is and, and have it in a place and a centralized place where kids can be creative when that spark hits them. 
Nice. You've got familiarized failure here, which is uh, feels like a really, really big one uh, for me growing up uh, with a with a mom who was given a lot of messages around perfectionism, and that that really contributed to the "don't try if you're going to fail" mentality that I was raised with. And so, how do you familiarize failure? I think there's two big things that come to mind. And of all the 10 things, like this one to me is one of the most like important and just so desperately needed. Uh, Cause our kids, again, with those overscheduled and expectations to get straight A's and, you know, get ready for college that our kids are just more stressed than ever. And this feeling that they're not enough. And so the ways that we help familiarize fa- failure in, in our home the big one is I try to mirror it myself. Um, and part of that's just as simply apologizing when I've done something wrong and really using those words. Like I messed up. I did not handle this situation well, and I'm sorry. And talking through that, or if I'm working on a project myself, letting those like, this is, this is hard. And I just took a lot of time to I had to start over so many times, like just being transparent about our own work and experiences and relationships so that kids know that, because I think kids sometimes, I'm amazed my own kids have said on a number of occasions, like, well, you're an adult, so you know how to do that. And to use that as an opportunity to be like, trust me, I know less now than what I thought I knew. Like, the older I get, the more I realize how little I know. And I want my kids to know that and to know that it's hard for us too, and that we make mistakes and that we fail. And then giving your kids any chance, you whether it's with their homework, whether it's with an art project, um, being involved in the journey of creation. My daughter was working on this mask and she had this vision of what it was going to be. And I came up to her room after she'd been in there for several hours. And she was just in tears because it wasn't, she's like, it's bad. It's horrible. I wasted all that time and all that, all those supplies. And, and so, you know, taking those opportunities to be like, yeah, but what did you learn? And let's look back at your first few projects you did. Like let, she loves making these 3d sort of cosplay masks. Like let's look back at the first one you did. Do you see how this one is already so much better than that first one? And that each time you learned and then showing them like, And just because you failed in this moment doesn't mean it's a failure, right? You can have mistakes and and fall down and you can get back up. And we were able to talk. And the next day she had fixed the problem and had created this beautiful thing and learned something. She's like, yeah, next time I know I'll do this. And so just being really aware and, and vocalizing those moments so that they latch onto it, be like, see, it's okay to fail. Because guess what? You will learn more from your failures than you will learn from your successes. Just encourage mistakes whenever you can't celebrate them. Like when they make a mistake, but you saw them try, make a bigger deal out of that versus when they come home, they're like, I got 100% of my test. Like that's a, oh, good job. But I always try to make a bigger deal when I see effort going into a project or an assignment that fails miserably or misses the mark. Like we celebrate those. I'm so glad we made time for you to share that. I, I feel like that's a really important lesson for so many reasons. And before we wrap up today, there is uh, 
number 10 on the list of 10 ways to keep kids creative and it's pursue passions. Aren't passions great? Yeah. I just, I kind of get tingles just thinking about it. I know. I love passion. And like some people, my mom, she hates the word passion because in her mind, she doesn't have a passion because I think the world has marketed this idea that we have this one passion and that's what we should make our job or our career or our life goal. And I think that is really troubling for a lot of people who don't have like, you know, there's some people who wake up, it's like, I want to be a piano player and I'm going to dedicate my life to it. Most of us have multiple passions. And if we put all of our energy into one, it's going to kill it eventually. And so the idea of, you know, following your passions, what are all the little things that bring you joy and life and follow it as long as it has that flame. And then it's okay if it dies out and you want to go follow something else. And as parents, we need to be aware of our kids' passions because the school systems, and it's no fault of the wonderful teachers, it's the system itself, is just designed to kill passions. We want them all standardized. We want them all coming out with the same skills at the same time. And if you are behind, you're going to feel stupid. And and that's such a shame because someone who maybe like my daughter, she struggles with math. She's so intelligent and emotionally intelligent. It's a little terrifying sometimes, honestly, Um, but she struggles with math. And for her, if she gets told that like, well, then you aren't at this level and you aren't with your peers, what is that telling her? And so, you know, this past year with COVID, we've been homeschooling, which has just been such a gift, a struggle, but also a gift to to reframe that and be like, well, let's find the math that speaks to you. And it's okay if you're not on level right now, you'll catch up, you'll get there, but let's work on your passions. Like you love doing this thing and let's give you that space to do it because I don't think she's ever going to be a mathematician, but she very likely will be an artist of some kind. And won't I be glad that I gave her that space and time to work on something that she wants to do rather than saying, yeah, but what will people think if you're not on level with that fourth grade math? Like, It's just um, passion's important and we need to preserve it in our kids because the world, unfortunately, I don't think it's intentional, but it, it's so easy for those passions to get just destroyed in the process. Well, let's use this as a diving board to, uh, as we're closing here, just tell uh, our listeners about your business and how they can interact with you if there's parents listening to this show. Sure. So um, I'm the founder of Manga Punga, which is all about saving kids' creativity. Um, we have a free guide that you can get on our website at mangapunga.com. And our big sort of service that we provide is a summer program uh, that's opening for registration in a couple of weeks here. And it's all about creativity. It's project-based learning that the kids get to lead. So rather than just like arts and crafts that they, here's, we're going to make this picture of a dog. It's really like, here's the theme. What are you going to make? And we give them that driver's seat experience where they get to be in charge and we get to feature them and just cheer them on and give them that experience that makes them feel like they're in charge of their education and it's a lot of fun. So Manga Panga, it's dear to my heart. The name comes from my daughter who, like I said, very creative, made us some funny hats once in New Zealand and said, these are Manga Panga. And my husband and I just looked at each other like, 
that is an awesome name. Let's go get the website. And we didn't know what we were going to do with it at the time. I love it. And I love even more that this episode is airing on Cafe Racer Radio on Mother's Day. Yay. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. (laughs) Happy Mother's Day, everyone. Thank you for sharing your joy and your love with me today. Thank you for having me. It was a joy and I could just feel your aliveness radiating out um, through my screen. So it was my absolute pleasure. There's so much I want to follow up on. And I loved it when she talked about creativity helping with anxiety and this ripple effect that the spark that you create by executing your project can ignite someone else to explore more and pass it on. Just a reminder to any of my listeners in California, and more specifically Burbank, Hollywood, and the general LA area, I invite you to check out Create Space. That's cr8space.com. But live and in person, it's a drop-in art studio filled with activities and supplies for everyone. And special daytime events designed for kids of all ages. Tell Dave and Annie that Sherry sent you. Remember to email me at IamVerySherry at gmail.com to win an all-access pass to Spark Healing Summit, May 20th to 23rd. The deadline is May 16th. And if you've been following my program and have heard me talk about my authentic relating practice, I'd like to invite you to join me and my colleague Sydney as we co-lead The Art of Being Human. It's a six-week course on conscious communication. It begins May 25th on Tuesdays from 5 to 8 Pacific Standard Time. I'll include a link under the episode description so you can learn more. I'd love to answer any questions you might have about the program. Next week, I'll be talking to one of my favorite float gurus, Dean Paris a co-owner of Float Seattle, about the magic of sensory deprivation tanks. Until then, keep mining and shining the gold within.